0: Thank you, Brother Jeff. Let's uh, continue in worship, and let me start with prayer. Father, I praise you for who you are. Thank you for this good day, a good day to hear from your word and think about you. And, uh, Lord, we pray that, again, that the words that we say and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. We ask your Holy Spirit to be here and among us in a work in special and powerful ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So my name is Pastor Jeremy. If you just came in, by the way, welcome. We're glad you're here to worship with us. Um, What we're doing right now in our church is we did a three-part series just at the start of the year, one on shepherding, another on stewardship, and today is on the gospel. It's kind of a churchy word. It's a Christian term, and I'll explain more of it when we get into it here in a little bit. But if you're taking notes, you can just write this down, and then we'll come back to it here in a second. The title for today's sermon is is gospel-centered, gospel-centered. What do we as a church want to be? And the answer to that is gospel-centered. Let me show you our vision real quick. Leah, if you're able to pull that up real quick. Our vision says this. We aspire to be a gospel-centered family where everyone we encounter moves closer to Jesus every day. We want to be gospel-centered. And this isn't a great idea that we came up with as a church like, oh, this is unique to us or novel or something. This is from the very beginning what the church is to be all about. I failed to send in this slide, but if you're taking notes, write this verse down. I would consider this the text for today. I'm actually going to move around on... Uh, lots of Bible passages. You'll have them here in the um, slides, but this would be what I would say is sort of the motivating factor for this term, for this purpose, for this mission, for this vision, for the engagement. And that's this. First Corinthians fifteen three and four. First Corinthians fifteen three and four. These Bible verses say this. The Apostle Paul says, "I delivered unto you as of first importance." It's the first important, It's not second, third, fourth, fifth. But what is the most important thing that the church is to be about? And that is this. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. That is the first thing. That's the big deal. That's why we call ourselves evangelicals or eungelion or gospel-centered gospel is our middle name. So gospel-centered is what our church wants to be. Um, It's what the sermon is titled. And I want to move it through the image today of a conquering hero. A lot of times you hear Christians sort of present the what we call the gospel. It seems kind of simplistic. It's almost like here's your fire insurance. Like if you die, you want to know you're going to a good place, so make sure you have this. And it's so much more than that. I mean, that's just short sheeting it or short-changing it or short-selling it or short whatever you want to call it. That's not it. The gospel is this huge, all-encompassing, good news picture of Christ's eternal reign and victory throughout the universe. It's not a tiny little thing individualistically applied just to you or to me. It's a big deal. It is creation, fall, redemption, restoration of all good things. The gospel is truly good news. It's not just little tiny, itty-bitty, micro good news. It is universal in scope. But when we say that word, it's a little bit strange to us, but it would have been a little bit more familiar to the people of the first century. And I want to show you some pictures of what they would have had in their minds when they heard eungelion, or the word gospel, or good news. And here's the first picture. This is the... Arch of Titus He's a Roman emperor, and we're going to leave that up there for just a second. I'm going to read to you straight off of Wikipedia what this is, and we're going to look at this picture as I do. It says this, the Arch of Titus is a first century AD honorific arch located in Rome, just to the southeast of the Roman Forum. It was constructed in 81 AD, Jesus crucified 33 AD. So shortly after that, by the emperor Domitian, shortly after the death of his older brother Titus, why would you make an arch to commemorate Titus? Well, in order to commemorate Titus's, here's a picture of it, his, this is at the top of the arch. His official deification, there's a bird there in front of him and his head at the top. I know it's a little worn out, but this is the Roman emperor, the savior, becoming the little G, the god, Titus. Shows him reigning over all and his majestic work in the kingdom that he's building. And look what he's doing, saving everyone under his triumphant reign. And then slide number three What happens is this arch is commemorating the victory of Titus together with their um, father, Vespian, over the Jewish rebellion in Judea. Remember, Jesus warned the people. He's like, flee to the hills. Watch out. There's bad stuff coming. 71 AD, um, the Roman victory culminated in the fall of Jerusalem. There was a rebellion. The Romans came in and smashed it and leveled everything, including the temple. Now, slide number four shows us the picture of what that looks like. I don't know how well you can see that there, but there is a menorah up on the shoulders of these looters, and they are carrying off the valuable golden artifacts from the temple treasury. This one here provides one of the few contemporary depictions of the artifacts of Herod's temple, and it became a symbol of the Jewish diaspora. That's the spreading throughout of the Jewish people. And the menorah depicted on the arch as the model for the menorah that's even used this day in the emblem of the state of Israel. So there it is in stone, the Arch of Titus. You can go visit it today. This is what the people in the first century would have thought of when they heard the idea of Titus as savior. Thank you, Leah. That's good. Um, They would have thought of basically this Roman emperor... Who, this is what a savior does, okay? So get this in your mind for just a second. We'll apply this to Titus, we'll apply this to the Jewish concept of savior, and then we'll apply it to Jesus. This is what a savior does. A savior comes in and enters a hostile territory. In this case, if you're Roman, you would say Judea, they're rebelling, these are the rebels. And he would confront and defeat the enemy, the Jewish rebels. He would capture the loot, as you saw on that picture, the temple artifacts. And then he would return in triumph and have all this loot and give it out to his people. Look what we did. We captured and we did a great thing. This is similar to what you see, for example, Moses in the Old Testament being depicted as a savior leaving Egypt. They're coming out with all these treasures and things that they've captured to supply the needs of the people. So too Joshua, the captain of the people, going into the promised land. And so in the Jewish mindset, when they're thinking of and praying about Messiah, they're not expecting Romans to come in and conquer them. They're expecting someone to come in and conquer the Romans. And so for them, a Messiah then would be someone who would enter the hostile territory, same thing, and they would defeat the enemy, that's the Roman occupiers, They would take back what was stolen, that stuff you saw on the arch. They would grab it and say, no, 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 this wasn't yours. This goes out to the people. And then they would give them back their dignity, their self-determination, their freedom, their rights, their respect, their ability to rule themselves. And the Savior would march through the streets in triumph and distribute the gifts to his people. That would be a Jewish Messiah. That's their mindset. We don't always get there today because we live in a very different world. But in some sense, you've celebrated these things. If you've been to like a 4th of July parade or Memorial Day parade, you see this sort of thing happening. You see like the heroes, whether it's the first responders or the firemen or police or military, and they're marching down the streets. And then there's some people dressed up and they're throwing candy or distributing the gifts to the kids. And you're remembering those good things that happened in your past. So when Jesus is coming on to the scene, people are expecting something like that. They want someone to march in and defeat the enemy and free the captives and capture the bounty and distribute the gifts. But what do we actually find? Luke chapter 2 verse 8 says this. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. A glory of the Lord shone around them. They're expecting this captain to come down in triumph. And the angel says to them, fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Oh, yes, here comes. For unto you this day is born. What? A baby? In the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Nobody's expecting a baby. That's not a savior. That's a baby. The savior goes on to confuse them even more as he grows up. He does a lot of things that look pretty saviorish, And people are getting excited and they're starting to ask him, are you that guy? And what he says to them is this. In Mark chapter 8, he says, he began to teach them that the son of man must... Absolutely, there's no other way. Essential, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. And the chief priests, whoa, 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 these guys are on our team. What? I thought, and the scribes, and, and be killed. Oh, this is not adding up. This does not make sense. You follow the book of Mark. Jesus has to say this to these guys three times in Matthew. It's repeated even more than that. And they are confused. Indeed, even I am confused. When we look at Jesus, there are things about him that just do not add up to us. He says some crazy stuff. And rather than just wipe it off and make him what we want him to be, why don't we accept him as he is? And here he is saying some pretty crazy things. And it still doesn't make sense. In Mark chapter 10. See, that was chapter 8. Now chapter 10, he's going to explain a little bit more. In chapter 10, verse 45, he says, hey, look. Yes, 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 yes. Jesus does have to die. Why? For even the Son of Man came not to be served like all those other conquering wannabe deities, But instead, to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, that's different. Most of the messiahs before that came to take life. But this one came to give life. His. Why in the world would that be? Why would a messiah have to die? Why is it necessary? That the Savior, who is supposed to conquer, would in fact be killed. The reason for that is what God said in the very beginning. You know, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. This deal is very simple. As human being creatures, when we rebel against God, what we get is death. As soon as we start to do anything that doesn't line up with the absolutely perfect, spotless character of God, that's called sin. And as the Bible tells us fairly clearly in Romans 6.23, it says this, that the wages of sin is death. God is life. God gives life. And we go against God, we get the opposite of life. We get death. Anything that is not in perfect continuity with who he is and his character is wrong. And that's what we call sin. See, Christians aren't out here just to be a bunch of cosmic killjoys telling you everything is bad and don't do anything no, we're saying do what is good, have fun. God created it. He gave you this portion. And when you pursue him, you will have the most meaningful, fun, fulfilling, and exciting life possible. And when you pursue other things, you get death. And then the enemy tries to lie to you and tell you that the things that will kill you are good. And God says don't go after them and we still do. And we die. We die. Romans 3.23 says it like this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no exceptions. Not the Pope, not Mother Teresa, not Pastor Jeremy, not you and me, not anyone else. Everybody has sinned. No one is absolutely perfect. Everything we do is, is not just right. It is not like God. And so as a result, we are guilty and we deserve damned and we get death. Thus, somebody has to die. Somebody has to. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. So, even though we deserved and earned death, the Bible tells us in Romans 5 8 that God demonstrates his love towards us. In that while we were yet sinners, while we deserved to die, Christ died for, in place of, instead of, on account of, on our behalf, as our substitute. Now, let me explain it like this. I know some of you are basketball fans out there, and I was trying to think of you know, something that might be a good feminine like illustration. I just couldn't get there, <laughs> so I'm just going to go with what I know okay so if if this is too one-sided just humor me and i think you'll understand what we're talking about i thought about teachers and substitutes that might work but here's the one i know and it's basketball and it works like this let's say there's a basketball team there's five people on the court in order to win the game you got to have five people on the court One of those five gets hurt, and I'm talking hurt bad. They blow out a knee or something like that. They cannot continue in the game. It's simply impossible. They can't stand up. They can't walk. And so their teammates got to walk onto the court and haul them off and then send in someone else who is capable of continuing what was begun. Someone else who is not broken. That person is broken and The substitute will take their place and finish what they could not. This is what Romans 5 describes of Jesus as the second Adam because the first Adam, Adam, like Adam and Eve, was broken and he could not fulfill God's perfect standard. He couldn't do it. Israel was broken. They couldn't do it. We needed someone who was not broken and perfect to come into the game, push us aside, take our place, and do what we could not. And that's what you call a saviour. He's a substitute. Big word here. Chase it down later if you want. Penal substitutionary atonement. That's what Christians believe. That Jesus came in and played our penalty. Our penalty. And he was our substitute. And as a result of that. We are made right or at one with God again. For the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned. But the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus Christ our Lord why Mark tells us look he has to die because the son of man came not to serve or be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many and here's how it all sums up then like this in John 3 16 listen to this children parents grandparents hear me for God so loved the world That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him. Should not perish. Even though we deserve it. Yet have eternal life. This is good news. That's what you call good news. That's the gospel. That's the evangelion. That's the good news of great joy. That the angel proclaimed to the shepherds that in fact we do have a savior that he Entered into this hostile territory. And the hostile territory is not Rome or Judea or the United States, but it's the world. And the world has been de- taken captive by sin. And the enemy is the devil. And so by coming into our world at Christmas, Jesus could fight against sin and win when Adam could not. And then he takes on the ultimate enemy, which is death. And lets it do its worst, and even that can't hold him down. He confronts and defeats the enemy, sin, death, and the devil. And Colossians tells it like it is it says, He disarmed these rulers and authorities and put them, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He embarrassed them. He humiliated them. He stomped on them. He triumphed over them. And freed the captives like every good savior should. And distributed the loot as gifts to the people. Jesus gave out bounty. Look at Ephesians 4.8. This is what it says. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, just like that arch. Do you remember that picture? Here's what we captured. Jesus did that. And he gave these gifts out to humanity. And guess what? Like any good savior, he will return in triumph. Jesus won. Jesus won. And so I think the simple call is the same one and to all. To go to Jesus. Go to Jesus, receive mercy, and find grace. If you've never believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you need to do so today for the first time. You need to repent and say, you're sorry. Yeah, we've messed up. All of us have. There's not a single one of us has been perfect. All are broken. All are in Adam. But if you want to get outside of Adam, if you want to receive mercy and find grace, then you need to get into Jesus. You need to no longer associate with that sinful and dead self, but instead with the living Lord the way you do so is very, very simple. You just repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, in his death, in his perfect life, in his burial, and his resurrection. If Jesus stayed in the grave, he's no good. He's like any other wannabe savior that came before him. But if Jesus is alive, if he is who he says he is, what else is there? Come to Jesus, receive mercy and find grace. Believe in him for the first time. You can pray in your heart. You can talk to people afterwards. There'll be elders, pastors, care team ministers, whoever. If there's somebody down here wearing lanyard, ask them. If not, ask your friend who invited you. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're listening to this saying, man, I wish I would have brought so-and-so today. Send them the link. Share it with them and just ask. Say, hey, I care about you. And that's the only reason I'm doing this. Here's... 30-some minutes. If you'll give that to me as a gift, I want you to hear what we think Jesus is all about. That Jesus wins and he is victorious and he is truly a savior who defeats sin and death. Believe in him and get eternal life. Amen? Okay. So let me give a little bit of encouragement too because I know there's people that have believed in him and... Um, Sometimes, believe it or not, you know, the way I I roll that out, you might think, well, once I believe, we're all good, but it it doesn't like stop there. It's hard and it's a struggle for the rest of your life. And you have to like keep believing, not keep believing for the first time, but you have to keep believing in Jesus' savior ness. You can go to him and say, I need a savior today. Like, you like to save people and I'm in trouble and I need you to save me today. I'm struggling with this. Will you save me from that? And you go to him. And the cool thing is. A lot of us as Christians. We might struggle with guilt. Because we think. Hey I became a Christian. I should be perfect now. But that's not what the Bible says. It says that Jesus is perfect. And we're not. And eventually we will be. But until then. We'll keep struggling. Two steps. Three steps forward. Two steps back. However it is. But. The thing about Christ is this. Listen to this statement I read somewhere. This is absolutely perfect. Ready? Jesus is the object of God's infinite and eternal delight. Jesus is the object of God's infinite and eternal delight. If God the Father wants to experience pleasure, he looks at Jesus. There's nothing more exciting, nothing more fulfilling, nothing more thrilling, nothing more spectacular in the entire world. If God wants the greatest thing ever, he looks at his son. There's no human words for me to be able to say this. The best thing that God could ever imagine is Jesus. And if he wants pleasure, he looks at Jesus. And every time he sees Jesus, he is happy and fulfilled and so excited. So, what do you think you need to do if you want him to be happy when he looks at you? Hide behind Jesus and get behind Jesus. That way, Every time that God looks at me, the shadow of Christ has fallen over me, and I'm hiding that, and I'm getting whatever pleasure spills off of him landed on me. The Apostle Paul always describes himself as in Christ, and that's a weird thing, but all it means is this: if you go out today, you're ready for this you walk out of this place and you get hit by a beer truck. Because it's highly likely that Midland Evangelical Free Church is going to have a beer truck driving around his parking lot looking for a place to unload. <laughs> but if you get hit by one, by chance, and you die, and you're standing before God, he says, why should I let you into heaven? Don't say, because I'm a good person. But you get right behind Jesus again, and you point at him and you say, I'm with him. I'm with him. When God the Father looks over at Christ, and Christ gives him the nod, you're in. That's it. You hide behind him. And when you're safe and secure in Jesus, then nothing else matters. And you know what that means? When God the Father looks at you and he sees Christ, he has pleasure. And you don't have to be afraid about what other people say about you, what you think about you. None of that matters. When God sees you and he sees Jesus, that means you're secure. Because Jesus is the object of God's infinite and eternal delight. That's why Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Listen to it clearly so you don't think it's just me. There is therefore... When you are in Christ, there is no condemnation, not yours, not mine, not anyone's, for those who are in Christ Jesus. As long as I remain hidden in him, I am absolutely, totally, completely, 100% eternally secure. Outside of Christ, there is no safety. But in him, God is satisfied. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is satisfied today? I don't know. I haven't. I can't. I, I, I. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. If it's about him and we're in him. It's not about us. And if you are truly believing in Jesus. And that banner is hanging over you. That banner says. God is satisfied. He's happy with that. And he sees Jesus. He sees you. He's happy. Really happy. My recommendation is hide in Christ. (laughs) Get him over you. You don't need more better you. You need more Jesus. Bring him into the picture more. And God will be pleased. God is satisfied. Listen, Jesus is, our sin is costly, right? Like it has a cost. Let's say I, I break the law and I speed, and the police officer pulls me over and gives me a ticket. There's a cost. I did something, there's a cost. But if the police officer gave me a $100 ticket, and that day I don't play the lottery, but let's say I won the lottery. Why would I care? That million dollars way covers the hundred dollars. And so too with Jesus. Yes, we sin and there's a cost. But his blood is more costly, more precious, more valuable, a greater payment than all my sin. His blood is a huge payment so much it takes care of all of our sins. And there is no sin that his blood is not more valuable than. You can't out-sin God. Martin Luther used to say sometimes when the devil would accuse him. He'd go and sin just a little more to prove him wrong. I'm not sure if that's the right way to do it. If I get what you're saying. You can't. Jesus' blood is more valuable. And his sacrifice a greater effect. Look if I sin I have an effect. That That speeding ticket, those points might go on my record. There's a cumulative effect there. It impacts me. If I get a cut, I get a scar. There's a reality of my sin. It has an impact. But Jesus' sacrifice is of greater effect. It's bigger. It has more lasting effect. It applies to the entire world. It applies to me. It applies to everything. You can't out-effect the effects of the cross. And so too, finally, the resurrection. His resurrection is more powerful. You know, if it's three steps forward and two steps back, what if it's two steps forward and three steps back? Then what the resurrection is, is like a gargantuan turbo boost 10 miles ahead. You know, when Jesus comes back from the dead, it overcomes everything, everything. His resurrection is more powerful. And that's why sometimes you hear me say, Jesus' blood is more costly, his sacrifice of greater effect, and his resurrection more powerful than all my sin. Yeah, my sin has effects. Yeah, it has a cost. Yeah, it's powerful. But Jesus is more. We have to preach that every day to ourselves. And so don't don't shortchange or sell the gospel. If you're a Christian, you need it just as much today as you did on the first day of your faith journey. You need to preach this over and over again. This is way more powerful than any self-help manual in the bookstore. If you forget everything else, remember nothing else, you remember that God... The father loves you, that the spirit forgives you or Jesus forgives you and the spirit goes with you. And if you need to reprogram that mind, get that data set in there. So over and over again, when you screw up and you feel bad, you say the same thing. Don't go to the self-help, go to the Jesus help and go there and say, my father loves me. The savior forgives me. Spirit is with me. Everything's going to be okay. Dad loves me. Savior forgives. The spirit goes with. That's going to be okay. Here's another way to say it. It's a little more complex, but it's all from the Bible. Fix this picture firmly in your mind. The great lion, King Jesus, descended from the line of David and raised from the dead. Earth and sky flee from his presence. Mountains melt like wax before him. Who is like our God? Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O oh, you gates, and lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. We have a savior. It's not Titus. He's dead. Gone. And everything he built is crumbling. But Jesus, he is crucified and risen and coming again. And what he is building cannot be stopped. He entered the hostile territory, confronted and defeated the enemy, captured the loot, and will return in triumph. Gospel centered. There's only one thing for us to be of first importance, and this is it. We have a Savior, a conquering hero, whose name is Jesus. Believe in Him. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. Lord, we say that every Sunday. And I hope we mean it. We do, Lord, we believe. Sometimes we forget, sometimes we fail. But we believe. We pray now as we get ready to celebrate him at your table that you would build in us anew a love for Christ, one that far outweighs and overshadows everything else. And we thank you that when we look to you and him, that you see not us but him. And your pleasure abides with us still. Father, you love us, Savior, you forgive, and Spirit, you go with, in Jesus' name.